All right, welcome to the Rojas Reports. This is Alejandro Rojas. We have a great guest today. Just real quick, I want to let you all know, uh, this is the live stream and the live streams now. Uh, I've got opened up to everybody who ever wants to join to pop in and say hi and to uh, ask your questions and, and post your comments that we can discuss with our interviewee. Um, and then they, after a few days, they do go into the archives and you can click that join button right there to uh, join to get access to the archives, a ton of exclusive, really great interviews in there that you'll be able to watch. So please do do that. Please do subscribe and please like the video if you like it and uh, ask us any questions that you have as we go along. Our guest today is Robert Powell and I'm gonna bring him on here. Hello, Robert. Hi, Alejandro. Good to see you and, again. Yeah, good to see you too. So Robert and I actually have been working together for a really long time now. How maybe probably at least 15 years, maybe, huh? Yeah, yeah. I think 13 to 15 years. Yes, yeah, so it's been a long time. Uh, I'll read a little bit about Robert. He has a, P, uh, a bachelor's in chemistry and is a former collegiate debater. He has 28 years experience in engineering management and the semiconductor industry. Um, while working on advanced micro devices, he took numerous internal courses related to device physics, design experiments, and statistical analysis. Uh, he's got a lot of different science that he's done. I'm actually going to, um, he also is the co-holder of four patents related to nanotechnology, but I'm going to move down. Uh, he's also a board member of the Scientific Coalition for UAP Studies, the SCU, which I bring up quite a bit. He used to be the director of research at MUFON and created MUFON Science Review Board. Um, he was a primary investigator of the Stevens Lights, Stevensville Lights by far. He created, uh, co-created the best analysis of that um, and then took his great analysis uh, work to um, apply it to an incident that happened in 2013 at the Aguadilla Puerto Rico airport. Um, and then also has done a uh, similar kind of report on the uh, the Nimitz case, but uh, he's also the co-author of a, a very important book, which is you know going to be a lot of what we're going to be talking about here. Uh, this book is UFOs and Government: A Historical Inquiry. Uh, let's see, I don't know if I have it handily available. Maybe I should have. It's huge. Um, I could use it to work out. It's it's this very big book, uh, <laughs> but it's very complete and thorough on government documents regarding UFOs. So thanks for joining us, Robert. Well, thanks, Alejandro. Look so talking to you today. Yeah, this'll be fun. I mean, what I would like to talk about and what I've been exploring is kind of, you know, where we go from here. So the Senate Intelligence Committee, of course, is has made this request to various intelligence agencies to coordinate their UAP efforts, and then also provide a public report with classified addendums. Um, on top of that, uh, the DOD, uh, in at least the most recent answering of questions to, uh, let's see, Stephen Gassel and uh, I think uh, John Greenwald of Black Vault, uh, has said, you know, that the, essentially their, their work is classified and their results are classified. Um, not indicating they have any intention of um, sharing public with or information with the public going forward. But I guess when you look at this situation, having, you know, looked at this, this voluminous background of UFO reports, what do you make of this? What do you, 
Um, do you, I guess, what first do you make of this decision? Do you think it was uh, wise and, and the correct move for them to ask uh, for the Senate uh, Intelligence Committee to ask the uh, intelligence community to create this one place to collect that data? I mean, I think it's a good idea in terms of giving the Senate Intelligence Committee a way to better understand um, the UAP issue. Um, what, you know, what we don't know, and we may not know for a year or two, is um, what exactly will they be told? And, and since that's all classified, we may never know. I, I actually looked... Uh, for past examples from the Senate Intelligence Committee, which was first formed back in 1976. And every example I could find of past cases, you know, everything from issues related to Iraq or to the Vietnam War, et cetera, uh, you can't, it's, it's still redacted. So I, I'm not sure what we'll find out when the report's done. Mm-hmm. So you're you you're not sure what this report may look like either. Yeah, I uh, I guess if I had to bet money on it, I'm not holding out that the general public will be told much. You know, once the Senate Intelligence Committee receives the report, because I think it will mostly all be classified. Mm -hmm. And that's an important point. Um, how do you feel about the classification? I can see the difficult situation that they're in and the need for classification on, on unknowns and potential foreign technology. Um, at the same time, you know, uh, we would all like them to release some information. So I can see how that's a struggle. Do you sympathize with that, that struggle as well? Yeah, I, I understand their struggle. I mean, there's certain things, uh, national security issues that you can't release, right? Uh, but then there are other things that you should be able to release. So I'll, I'll give you an example. Let's just take the Nimitz case. So in the, in the Nimitz case, we're, we're fairly confident they've got the radar data, right? Because they, they kept the videos and the radar data is worth much more than those videos. They didn't throw that away. So if they were just to release the radar data, that could compromise national security issues because an adversary could see exactly what our capabilities were if they got their hands on the raw data. But if instead of doing that, they, for example, had uh, several scientists just look at the data and then discuss it, and then let's say the report is, uh, we'll make the statement that these objects were capable of moving at 20,000 miles an hour at, in dense earth atmosphere, right? Which is something we cannot do because it would just melt. Um, to me, that's not a national security issue per se, and we're not giving away any information, right? Um, so I think that they should be able to tell us those types of uh, bits of information. Uh, but my gut feel is that that won't happen. Mm -hmm. And I mean, along those lines and justifying that, at least in a Nimitz situation, and correct me if I'm wrong, they've essentially said this is a genuine unknown, that they don't believe it to be Chinese or Russian. 
And if they don't believe it to be Chinese or Russian, that then should allow them to share the sort of information you're talking about. Exactly, because think about that when they say this is truly unknown, right? They've got the radar data. If you've got the radar data, it's hard to say that you don't, it's hard to say it's truly unknown unless it really is. So the question becomes, do they know that, that there's an object here doing something that's just unexplainable? And to me, if that's the case, they should go ahead and let the American public know. Uh, that's my view on it. Mm -hmm. And really, um, I guess now that I think about it, uh, and for the audience, like we mentioned before, you wrote a, a pretty exhaustive report with Peter Reale, and um, I think there's a version where you work with Kevin Knuth on it uh, as well, examining the Nimitz uh, incident. Um, the only official information, I mean, most of what we know is what was revealed by the New York Times, uh, and then, you know, the witnesses coming forward themselves on Unidentified, but also other newscasts and other uh, interviews. Um, and then also a leak from George Knapp uh, of an alleged military document um, written for the military. Uh, but the only official information regarding the Nimitz that has been released is essentially uh, that statement that uh, that it was truly unknown, but uh, and they don't believe it's Chinese and Russian, but that's about all we have officially. Is that right? Right. That's correct. That's the only official word that's come out is that they don't believe it's Chinese or Russian. Mm -hmm. So a lot of, you know, it feels as though there's been some more transparency regarding this topic, but there really hasn't been. I mean, really, uh, it's leaks and, and people coming out themselves uh, is how we know about most of this. Yeah, it, it's kind of interesting. I mean, in a way, though, just the act of admitting they don't know what it is but that it exists, right? Mm -hmm. That's something that hasn't happened um, in quite a while. And, you know, one thing that, I don't know if you've thought about this, but it's like, why, right? Why did the Navy admit that? Because meanwhile, through this entire conversation, the, the Air Force is completely silent. Mm -hmm. So it makes you wonder. Now, what are your thoughts? I have my ideas, and they're mostly based off of what uh, Chris Mellon has kind of felt about that or, or his goal was in, in achieving that. But what are your thoughts? Yeah, I, my thought is I don't think Chris agrees with me on this thought. My, you know, and I'm not sure this is right, but my thought is, is that the Navy uh, – <clears throat> wants a bigger piece of the defense budget, right? Just like the Air Force wants a bigger piece mm. of the defense budget. And so I think the Navy looks at it and says, you know, this is a strong justification for us getting more money for some of the state-of-the-art work we're doing. Because, you know, really the Navy does a lot of the state-of-the-art. They do the work on the uh, magnetic rail guns. Uh, they do... I, I would not be surprised if most of state-of-the-art laser work is done by the Navy on laser systems capable of taking down aircraft. So I think this is a way for them to say, here is something that, you know, we really need to work on our state-of-the-art equipment. And so we need the funds to do this. And that's their justification. And so they go to the Senate Intelligence Committee to help justify that. 
Uh, that's my gut feel. I, I think you have a really, it's a great, it's a, I think you have a really strong argument. And in fact, I think that uh, John Alexander kind of uh, agrees with you along those lines a bit. And I'll get into that. First, I'll get into what Mellon kind of is, as uh, explained. And essentially their goal was to get out this great Nimitz case with the videos and everything, get all as much media attention as possible, uh, forcing the uh, government, the military to, to speak to it. Um, not realizing that the Navy would be so quick to jump on it and to say, okay, we take this seriously. It, it's a real thing. They didn't expect that to happen as soon. They thought that would be a, a bit of a bigger battle. Um, but, you know, Brian Bender uh, from Politico has also shared that the Navy is much more PR savvy than the Air Force. And they, they saw the need to get in front of this. Um, and the Air Force hasn't yet. They've been backpedaling. And uh, Adam Kehoe, who I've interviewed, has written some articles around this also showing that that's a dangerous position, that the Air Force is going to lose out on being able to take the lead on this issue by doing that. Uh, but John Alexander said something more along. He, his warning was, what's going to happen here is that the primary concern that uh, the, the agencies, the intelligence agencies are going to have, the various agencies that are involved with this, is their budgets that really, sure, the Congress holds the purse strings, but their angle is going to be to either protect what they have budgetary-wise or try to get more and use this issue to justify uh, more projects and more money and a bigger budget which would make a lot of sense why another motivation for the Navy to come out early on. So that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, I, I agree with that. And, and that's the most I can think to justify, but they are walking a tightrope because the Air Force, you know, back in the 50s and 60s walked that same tightrope. And the problem that you run into is you reach this point where Congress asks you, what can you do about this? So well, you can't just say, well, keep giving me more money and I'll give you an answer someday. I mean, at some point you have to say, well, there's nothing I can do about it, right? Which is not an acceptable answer. So mm -hmm. that that's, that's where the Air Force said, you know, it's not a national security issue. Uh, there's no threat. Um, we, we don't need to be worrying about it. What do you make of the Air Force being so silent? On I, I, I think that's why I think I think they're still using their same philosophy from decades ago of uh, they don't talk about it. I mean, this the Stephenville incident, which only happened 14 years ago. Right. When a reporter called the uh, Air Force, that was basically the answer they gave. You know, we, we don't investigate UFOs. We don't do anything about it. And to this day, they st that's still their modem operandum. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I, Luis from the Unidentified Celebrity Re Review is asking how much money have they put into it really? Well, we don't know really that answer to that question. And th the way that you framed it earlier is that we wouldn't necessarily know because the money wouldn't necessarily go to a UFO specific project, but more of boosting radar capability or laser capability, boosting other projects that currently exists, but using UAPs as a justification to get more money for those projects. 
yeah, that, that's that's what I think because you can justify your state of the art uh, projects with UAPs. Mm-hmm. Uh, WTF is the space force for Cartola asks, and I actually covered this this morning in the the Open Mind GFO Radio. But yeah, my take is that I think it's obvious. I mean, it's to protect uh, American assets in space, uh, satellites. Uh, when we get to to the moon or or elsewhere, or those those things. But mostly right now, the trillions of dollars in satellites. We're the king of satellite um, producers, and and we've got most satellite, and we're the the top uh, economy that relies on satellite and satellite technology. So I mean, I, that's what my take on space force. Do you have something to add to that? You think? No, actually, that's very close to mine, Alejandro. I was at a, a meeting two years ago that was in Huntsville, and it was uh, one of the cl- uh, presentations was by an Air Force major. And he was talking about, uh, and he, as he said, he didn't talk anything classified, but he said that their concern is that we lose our satellite systems in the event of a war. And their concern was more China than Russia, because they said, their concern with China is our advantage in a war is our electronic capabilities and our satellites. If they take those out, then it just becomes a numbers game of of how many soldiers can you throw against the other country? And Mm -hmm. so that's one of their big concerns. And China has been pretty uh, bold about attacking their competitors. Um, In other words, they have state run, you know, corporations and, and, that their competitors are private companies in the the states and they've been pretty bold about hacking them or attacking them on other levels so i think the fear is that they probably would not have any problem taking out some satellites right right and you know that's a whole nother show probably but if you lose your satellites uh i mean your everything comes to a halt i mean your internet everything your capability of flying a civilian aircraft now uh, because you lose all your GPS. Uh, Sonia says, I think that's, there's, I think is a, which I think is a lie. There's no way they aren't investigating something unknown flying around in our skies. Um, Well, there are some investigations going on, but I guess if this pertains to the space force, in a way she has a point in that the space force is observing you know, what's in the immediate space and they're watching that closely. So they could have some UAP data, uh, but we don't know uh, if they've done anything with that. I mean, likely they do, right? Right, right. I mean, by definition, they have to investigate any object that's flying through the atmosphere, right? Uh, But especially in near earth orbit, there is so much junk that the date, the amount of data you have is unbelievable. So you really have to use algorithms where you're looking for your adversary. In other words, you're looking for an ICBM. You're looking for a satellite changing orbital location. You're not looking for something that would suddenly stop or so, or suddenly begins to move, let's at a speed of 30,000 miles per hour, which is well beyond what any satellite is going to move at. Uh, so I understand her, her point, but um, I think a lot of that data gets filtered out because it's not a national security issue. Mm-hmm. Uh, a couple of questions. Sonia said, actually, she was talking about the, the Air Force. And in that respect, 
she's 100% correct, I would say. And I, I you know, you could, you'd probably agree in that. Although the Air Force says they don't investigate those cases, we have documents that show otherwise. Yes, that, that's correct. They do uh, investigate those type cases because really by definition, any object that's unidentified and you're aware of, you have to investigate. Now, at some point you may decide, oh, this, this is one of these crazy, uh, you know, this thing's moving at 40,000 miles an hour. That doesn't make any sense. Discard it, right? Uh, so that I can see that happening, but they do have to look at everything they can. Uh, somebody else is asking if Biden wins, do you think he will disband the Space Force? I don't think so in that it's already happened. We've already invested so much. But more than that, uh, Brian Bender actually responded to a similar question recently, reminding people it was actually Democrats who first uh, suggested a Space Force or, or another branch dedicated. Essentially, they swung U.S. Space Command out into its own branch. Um, we already had kind of that uh, branch, but uh, so it, it it's fairly bipartisan. It's become more of a Republican thing lately. I think what in like 2015, the Republicans tried to do that and it didn't go very far. And then when Trump came in, they, they were able to make it happen. Yeah, I, I think that's, it's fairly independent though of, of Republicans and Democrats. Uh, I do think the various military agencies have, you know, uh, concern or interest in who creates the Space Force, right? I, I read an interesting uh, paper that a Navy guy wrote, and it was, uh, the entire paper was about why it should be the Navy that, you know, creates and generates the Space Force. And he ended his paper with, why do you think they call them space ships? <laughs> <laughs> interesting. So here's another question I'll ask of you. I, I think this is kind of uh, uh, and since you've looked at so much material, um, he says, do you think the military would launch, and I hate using the term false flag, uh, false flag UFO incident to get the funding they desire, or is that conspiracy theory garbage? I, I think it's conspiracy theory. I, uh, I, I mean, already the Navy has you know, plenty of uh, information like in the Nimitz case that they don't really need to, you know, create a false uh, incident. They can, you know, come up with actual ones. Right, right. So, and even in this situation, like you said, they can use this situation to get funding. But the danger is they can also use this, they can use this situation to get funding, but not necessarily... Uh, it might not result in tra more transparency. Right. And, and that's what I think will happen. I think uh, <clears throat> they're using it for funding and I don't think they're going to want to have to start getting into discussions and explanations related to there's something in our skies that, you know, we don't have control over. Mm hmm. And, uh, yeah, that's why I've, I've been trying to tell people to get a hold of your politicians. If you want more transparency, let them know. Because yeah. they might not necessarily know that. Yeah, that's I, true. It's hard to say uh, if anybody has a good feel on the public's interest. Oops. Maybe a, yeah. a feel on the government's 
int or people's interest, but not necessarily where they want that to go. I mean, it's entirely possible, and they could believe that the public is happy knowing that they're looking into UAPs, but don't necessarily expect them to share information on a regular basis unless they have something of significance to share. I think that's a good point. Unless, if the public demands of Congress sufficiently, then they will share. But otherwise, I don't think there's a motivation to. Uh, here's a question uh, that uh, Louise had earlier that uh, I was thinking about too. When you talked about the radar data and how it's better data than video data, maybe you can explain that. Okay, so on, on video data, um, you're just looking at this video, right? You don't have, we don't have any of the telemetry. Uh, in the case of the Nimitz, the guy's radar system was not able to maintain lock. Um, but with radar data, right, I can determine the actual speed of the object. Uh, I can determine its level of acceleration. And based on the witness testimonies, right, from the pilots as well as the radar operators, uh, the speed and acceleration of the object was so great that it's beyond anything that we're going to be producing any time in the next 20, 30 years, let alone 15 years ago when this happened. Right. So, and, and that data, essentially, I mean, that's scientific data. That's hard data, which it, makes a much stronger argument. There's no, there's no question about it. You're not looking at a little a fuzzy blob that's moving across the screen. Um, you've got actual hard data and it's a lot of data, right? Because you've got radar from the Princeton, from the Nimitz, from the E-2 uh, aircraft that was up and also pulled it up on radar. So you've got multiple radar sites uh, worth of data, which is really invaluable in terms of uh, looking at this thing. Mm -hmm. You know, getting back to the, the false fig flag question, um, which is pretty conspiratorial, and like you said, it's, it's kind of silly conspiracy, but what's interesting is that, you know, the Navy has come down and said that their investigation resulted in this being classified as unidentified, and I would say they begrudgingly admitted that, because I don't, I, it, it, people asked for a long time before they kind of admitted to that. Um, and uh, that's based off of investigation they've done with the data they have. They have radar data. They have a lot more data than we have in the public. So your report on the Nimitz case, you didn't have radar data. You had to rely on witness testimony um, and the videos and, and, and that sort of thing. Uh, and some people have accused you all of you know, that that's not scientific data, that's not, you know, hard enough data, that what I do, what I see when it comes to those videos, it's birds or balloons, or, or they mistaken a jet or something like that. But that's actually fairly conspiratorial, because what they're essentially saying is the Navy's tricking us, that they had all this data, they, they had to have known what it was, but instead they're trying to sell, tell us it's unidentified, it's not ours, it's not Chinese or, or Russian, it seems like those people who you know are, are criticizing you and your report are not considering um, the the Navy had obviously had to have conducted a pretty thorough investigation with a lot of data in, at their um, in their hands. Right. Yeah. So the, I mean, there's no doubt in my mind that the Navy knows absolutely uh, whether 
these objects can be explained um, in any rational way by it being China, Russia, etc. The what I thought on the Nimitz case, the most uh, important piece of information, we had three examples where we had extreme acceleration. There was the video, there was the testimony of the radar operators, but the most striking in my mind was the testimony from Fravor who engaged the object and his backseat pilot. And then the testimony of the plane and the two pilots in there, one of whom was Lieutenant Commander, who were at a totally different angle and they're watching the same thing that Fravor's watching, right? So you've got two different angles and both of them indicate that this object disappears from sight within one to two seconds. So you're talking about um, something you can't explain because of reflection of the sunlight disappearing or anything like that You because of it. So with that, it's very straightforward using trigonometry to just calculate how fast does an object that's in the range of 40 to 60 feet, how fast does it have to travel in order to disappear from sight in one to two seconds? If, if you go to an air show, a jet plane that goes by at Mach 2, you know, if, if you find one at Mach 2, uh, it's going to take him eight to 10 seconds before he disappears from your sight. And these disappeared in one to two seconds. Yeah, wow. And, you know, Kevin Knuth, when he was referring to this report, he also took into to, um, consideration, and I forget what he calls it, maybe you'll remember, uh, how wrong can the witness be? Um, certainly the witness isn't going to be, isn't a, a robot, so he's gonna, not going to be able to calculate right. uh, everything completely accurately. But even if you uh, account for being pretty wrong, you know, uh, right. one direction or another, you're still looking at some pretty extraordinary speeds. Exactly. And that's what we did. We, we said, okay, what if it was one second? What if it was two? What if it was six seconds? You know, what if these guys were so bad that they confuse one second with six seconds and, and the, the G forces are still beyond what even the aircraft can survive, let alone a pilot. Uh, the additional thing is, you've got the commander and the lieutenant commander of the squadron. Both of these guys are Naval Academy graduates. So you, this isn't just any pilot. These are the cream of the cream of the U.S. Navy. So if, if these guys can't tell us that something disappears in two seconds, then we've got major problems with the defense of this country. Mm -hmm. Someone is asking, how the hell do these things go so fast? Uh, and what your answer is, and I would add to that, how do they go so fast and not create a sonic boom? Right, and it's and it not only not create a sonic boom at the speeds they're moving, they should be a ball of fire. I mean, they're moving at speeds close to meteoric speeds. Um, the only way that I can come up with is that by some method, they're not really interacting with the atmosphere. You know, however, however they do that, because there, you don't hear the sonic, but you don't hear a sonic boom. There's no huge airwave as it passes an aircraft or a boat. Uh, I mean, at those kind of speeds, there should be a, uh, an airwave that just knocks you down. Uh, and, and at those type of speeds, no metals we have 
will even stay solid because in the lower atmosphere, the temperature it's going to reach, it's going to just melt. So, and become a fireball. So there's no, I don't think they interact with the atmosphere. Mm -hmm. And um, do you have any idea how they may go so fast? No, I mean, it would be just be pure speculation on my part mm -hmm. trying to figure out because I don't think anyone can, you know, give a good ex explanation for that. So all of those things that you explained when you, uh, you know, it should be on fire, it should have created a, a, a air wave, um, it should have made it a sonic boom. Um, some people have kind of speculated that perhaps then this was some sort of um, projection some sort of technology that can project. What do you make of that theory? Uh, we actually considered that theory uh, when, when we discussed it. The problems with it is, one, the projection clearly shows up on radar, which that's possible, right? You, you can take a plasma and plasmas will show up on radar, but normally a plasma is not going to be a distinct point on radar because it sends the radar beam in all sorts of directions. So you're going to get uh, very poor um, radar signals, and I don't think you'd be able to isolate where the object is located. Um, so th I think that's some of the problem with uh, ho hologram. Additionally, this if it was a hologram, it reacted to Commander Fravor, Fravor the pilot, right? Because he was actually engaging the object, and the object reacted to his traveling down. So that means you now have a hologram that you created that knows what the F-18 is doing. And for it to know that, then it's probably using radar. Mm -hmm. Well, if it's using radar, the F-18 would have known there was radar in the area. Same thing with the Princeton or the, uh, or the Nimitz. So, mm -hmm. and you're doing this outdoors, right? In an environment which is not conducive to creating holograms. I mean, you, you've got a high humidity environment. Uh, I just, you know, if we were doing this in a room, then I would say, you know, in a giant auditorium, I'd say, yeah, you could create a hologram that does that. But I don't think so um, the way this happened. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I think what they're, they're thinking of um, are, it's some sort of radar and visual trickery uh, kind of uh, technology that someone perhaps developed. And, and which means you also trick the radar systems mm -hmm. uh, with, with the same system that created the hologram. And, and this was done 15 years ago. Mm -hmm. um, that's a good point too, 15 years since that, that had occurred. And um, some people are arguing that that's what the Roosevelt experienced was whatever was being used against the Nimitz was used against the Roosevelt, but there was what a 10 year gap or something like that between those two. Right. And in the, the Roosevelt, we just don't really have that much data on, you know, what was this, you know, the object uh, in terms of having uh, the radar data, like we don't have any witnesses to what was showing up on radar with the Roosevelt. Mm -hmm. uh, and we have a lot less witness testimony. And of course it's understandable uh, most of the, your witnesses are still in the Navy or in the service. So you're not going to be able to get their testimony. Mm -hmm. So, um, 
it seems as though when it comes to, you know, the coalescing of UAP data, and some people have been curious about this, and I'm actually working on an article on, on it. Uh, you know, uh, in fact, Jan Aldridge, you know, um, I was on the uh, radio show that the UFO News Network last night with Chant and Frank, and uh, they had Jan Aldridge ask me a question. And he was asking questions along the lines of, you know, Chris Mellon is saying when he had the job of oversight of, of the black projects, essentially, he never ran across a UAP project. And this is related to my recent article, he told me. And so he was surprised that when he found out about ATIP, because he didn't realize there was a project going on in that arena. But uh, I think some of the confusion is kind of related to what we were talking about earlier, is that uh, a lot of the UAP research um, is likely not been done. And I think your government documents kind of demonstrate this as well in a specific UAP project. It's just they were captured perhaps by a radar or, or some other um, telemetry and then studied within other projects that were related to gathering that sort of data, not necessarily UAP specifically. Yeah, I'm, I'm not convinced that there is a, a, a set government organization that goes out and researches UAPs. I think it's like you, you said, Alejandro, they were working on another project. This happens. They gather the data. They collect it. They put it in a cubby hole and off they go. Um, I, don't, I don't. There's only one thing that's made me kind of change my mind on that a little bit, and that's you know, the testimonies that the data was taken off the USS Princeton, which mm -hmm. um, that tends to indicate someone knew about that as it was happening and went and collected the data. Now, whether or not that's truly an organization that has existed for a long period of time and has been collecting data, or that was just a, a one-off, right? There's no way to know. Mm-hmm. So what do you make of the idea? Because then the follow-up is, um, and I forget what Jan's perspective was on this, but Chris had, was then, I mean, skeptical that there could be some sort of project or program that um, had shirked or gotten around oversight, your typical oversight protocols. Do you think that's possible? Yeah, I, th I think it's possible for, you know, I mean, historically, there have been cases not related to UFOs of uh, where, organizations got around uh, congressional oversight. Mm -hmm. Do you, can you recall some? I mean, uh, you know, I, I don't know the name of it, but one of them, for example, was the uh, project where the CIA was doing LSD testing on uh, individuals within the United States. Um, that was a mm -hmm. project that, you know, there was no congressional oversight. Um, and as a matter of fact, the reason the Senate Select Committee on Intelligence was created, my understanding is, was to investigate uh, the CIA for um, instances of foreign assassinations and for spying on American citizens. And that's what kind of got the whole concept of creating a Senate uh, Intelligence Committee that goes out and reviews uh, items like this. But and I mean, if if it's discovered there is somebody going around regular oversight, that's pretty big deal, right? I mean, that's probably going to be a pretty big story. Yeah, if 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 they're able to discover them or find out about them. Mm -hmm. uh, and my view is, 
if that agency exists. It, it wasn't ATIP. I think. Right. You know, I think it's well beyond what ATIP was able to do. Mm -hmm. I think ATIP. Um, I don't know. I would love to hear how you would you would frame it. But uh, essentially, a pet project of Harry Reid, something foisted upon the Pentagon, um, and working as kind of its own little group. And it was not something that was Elizondo's primary job. So when he had the time, he would work on that, uh, coordinating with others in the intelligence community, but uh, um, much smaller than than some large project or program. Yeah, that's exactly how I see it. it I mean, I think they were looking, they were getting scrap, table scraps to go work on. Mm -hmm. I don't think they, they were not given uh, carte blanche to go investigate UAPs, I think. Mm -hmm. The, the budget they had, 22 million is not, not very large as budgets go, so. And I mean, you like you, you mentioned, uh, they were given table scraps, and, uh, and which I think is probably accurate, but what's interesting about that, and, and your work, you know, in the book and everything has probably kind of demonstrated this as well, that, you know, Harry Reid says, what you've seen so far is the tip of the iceberg, uh, certainly Elizondo has said something similar, that there's a lot more out there. So there seems to be quite a bit of data um, that is still out there that we haven't seen yet. And I mean, would you, do you feel like that rings true? Oh, I think absolutely that, that's the case. And actually, I know that's the case. I know that in the case of the 2015 Roosevelt incident, I know that there's three more videos out there. Um, I had a guy contact me that, if you remember, the New York Times only released initially uh, one of the videos of the Roosevelt incident. I don't remember if it was Go Fast or Gimbal. So this individual told me about five videos, right? And the other four he mentioned, one of them was the one that got released, I think in January or February, right? So he told me about it before it was ever released. So I have no reason not to believe that there, you know, that he's correct. And there are the three other videos that he says he's seen. So, uh, and so I think probably what Harry Reid is, and I'm just guessing now, uh, is probably that he's, he knows of more evidence, such as like these three videos I just mentioned. And so he suspects that there's even more beyond that, which is probably correct. So I think, mm -hmm. you know, it is probably a tip of an iceberg, but uh, it would be difficult probably to get a hold of it all. So given that, that they, there's a lot more information that is had, who knows how stovepiped it is and how, you know, much it's dispersed across different agencies that may or may not have coordinated yeah. with that data. Do you think there is somebody that knows more? And if so, how much more? You mean like one individual? Well, I guess not one individual, but an agency. I, I suspect that there is an agency that knows some more, you know, knows more than what ATIP, you know, knew. But mm. <clears throat> I don't know that there's an agency that really envelops all of the information and has everything. I think it's, like you said, stovepiped in, in various groups and organizations. I'm sure some of it's lost, some of it they don't even know where it is anymore because i mean this is clear back into the 1950s right so it's going back for for quite some time 
which yeah. is so i mean i guess where do um we go from here i mean how has this affected your work that's a good question uh i mean i just i just keep slugging away when i can get a good case that has good information and data on it uh, and those don't come along very often mm -hmm. uh, you know the nimitz came along and um I would love to work on the Roosevelt case, but there's just not enough data there to, uh, you know, to really make a case like was made with Nimitz. Mm -hmm. uh, we really need a lot. We need all the data we can get in order to do a proper analysis of a, a given event. How hopeful are you that we'll get more data? I mean, essentially with this, you know, plan, uh, you know, the, that with Mellon and Elizondo working to get this to the Senate and the way Mellon framed it is, you know, we just shared the information. We coordinated the briefings. It was up to them to identify whether or not it was substantial enough information to take action on it. And they did choose to take action on it. And, and I would say, you know, pretty big action. Um, what they're requesting to do is quite an effort. Um, to coordinate all of that data and get that report together in a fairly short period of time, um, like a year and a half or, or was it six, something like that? Yeah. Uh, uh, I, I think actually, I, I think what Chris and uh, Luis Elizondo have done is in that arena is probably the most valuable thing that TTSA has done. And that is bring this to the attention of Congress and whether we ever hear the, end result of this committee, you know, report, uh, just them getting it in front of Congress and getting it taken seriously, I think is, uh, I mean, you got to give them, ha you know, hats off for what they've done there. Mm -hmm. um, and the signal uh, is asking, what do you make of the TTSA vault? And will it be a rich resource uh, in terms of accessing information? Um, what do you know about that program? Uh, and well, my understanding is the vault is a program to try to gather all UFO data from all organizations and then to do a AI type of analysis of that data. Uh, the problem I have with that is you have to determine which of those cases are real cases and which aren't. And since we know roughly 90, 95% of all cases are misidentifications. So that means you've got this gigantic pile of data and only about this little tiny 5% is real data, but you're gonna take all of it and analyze it. Well, it, it's the old garbage in, garbage out. Uh, you can't do that until you screen out all the incorrect. And uh, I don't believe that uh, there's a AI uh, algorithm out there that would be capable of doing that well. Mm -hmm. um, and I think I, you would be one of, the most expert people to ask that question to, uh, perhaps the most, because that's kind of what you did at MUFON with your research group. And and I would eagerly await your your yearly report for the best cases. Uh, yeah. And the, out of all those MUFON cases in a year, it would get boiled down to maybe uh, five or six or maybe a dozen cases. Yeah, you know, the, and so it, it's very difficult to do correlations when that's that's the case. Now, th there is a uh, um, some work that we're doing with NSCU on that, 
and I think I'll be able to present it at our next conference. And what we're doing, and I don't know if it's going to be successful, but what we're doing is, you know, the same type of AI algorithms that the FBI uses, for example, to figure out if when you're on Facebook, you're a, uh, a terrorist threat, for example, they look for keywords, right? And so we've done the same thing on UFO reports. We've created a, a lexicon dictionary of keywords that will help us identify, <coughs> excuse me, reports that are more likely to be real reports than reports that aren't likely. So we're going to see if that is one way to get rid of the garbage so that you can analyze it. Mm -hmm. Which is, yeah, which is so important. And it's one of the things that I think the media doesn't get, but a lot of people don't get. You know, why aren't you looking at correlations? Why aren't you looking at the data to figure out trends and things like that? But the data is so tainted that it yeah. takes a lot of work to filter out and figure out what's the, the best data. And even at MUFON, when you would do that, let's say you came up with one, when you're 10 cases, that doesn't include typically um, uh, the sort of data that like the government would have, radar data. In some cases it would, right. but not right. always. Sometimes it's purely anecdotal. Right. Yeah. The data was usually anecdotal. Let's, but what we would look for is, um, you know, the data, we have multiple witnesses or your witness was a, a physics professor, uh, you know, where you had two policemen, uh, you know, something along those lines. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the daily UFO. I used to write daily UFO stories. That is true. And especially MUFON reports, yeah. someone just mentioned. But uh, unfortunately, I don't have the time to do that anymore. That'd be nice to get back to that. Um, there, someone else is asking, why do you think that the Air Force is so secretive? Why do they keep gaslighting us? Why do they? Why are they being so secretive? Well, if you just look at the history of the Air Force's experience with the UFO topic, uh, initially they weren't. They were initially open, but then once they determined that it wasn't a Soviet, you know, these were not from the Soviet Union, and <clears throat> they couldn't figure out what they were. It just became an issue of, so, so what, what do you want the Air Force to do? Um, they're certainly not going to open their Komoda and say, oh, we don't know what's flying over our skies. So their solution was basically the, uh, you know, to the Colorado report and to get out of the business, the public business of investigating UFOs. Like someone mentioned, you know, they still look at UFOs, I'm sure, but they don't look at it and talk to the public about what they saw. So if you if you call an Air Force base today and you say, yeah, I saw a UFO over your Air Force base, they're going to say, oh, I'm sorry, sir, we don't investigate UFOs, uh, contact the police department. I mean, is that crazy or what? <laughs> but that's what they'll tell you. That doesn't mean that they would ignore it, but. And then, you know, um, with the, uh, Oh, I lost my train of thought. I would, someone mentioned something and I read it and I lost my train of thought. But I would, what it, the, I guess that I don't remember now. What about um, also uh, any like disinformation or misinformation that had happened? You know, we do know like the guys working on the U2, um, uh, even though they, the Area 51 report, you know, the, the guys working on the U2 said, oh, we, we were responsible for Project Blue Book. No, the timeline doesn't work there. 
But they are right in that the U-2 did generate a lot of UFO reports, and they were happy that people were thinking they were aliens or something like that. They didn't want people to know uh, that they had the U-2 flying around. Um, do you believe there has been uh, other projects like that where they're like more than happy and maybe even encouraging people down that road to cover something up? Yeah, I, <clears throat> there's a, there's several instances, you know, that's, that's one good example. The other one is the Roswell incident, which I'm not a Roswell fan, you know, of what happened there, but nonetheless, it, it had a lot of, there was, something happened, we don't know what, and the Air Force came out with a report in the 1990s where they took a bunch of dummies and tried to say that was the cause of the Roswell, and they tried to cover it up, and basically, they just kind of got deeper in the, in the muck uh, by trying to do that. Right, exactly, or uh, they also, you know, and it wasn't, the weather balloon material um, that they showed in the photographs. And, you know, several people have admitted that, not to say it was alien. We don't know if it's alien, but, um, you know, it wasn't what they were trying to tell us there was. So there was a cover up. And in that sense, you know, here again, they're kind of creating their own problem. Yeah. And, you know, sometimes it's, it's almost like they just feel like, well, we don't need to tell you. It's none of your business, right? Mm -hmm. Even though they're supposed to work for the citizens of America. Uh, it doesn't always work, you know, that way. It, it's just like in the Stephenville case, right? There were uh, five or six Air Force bases around where this incident happened. And I sent requests for radar data, right? Every one of these had radar sites. And the answer didn't come back. Uh, this is not, you know, our radar data is national security. You can't have it. Their answer came back. We have no information responsive to your request, which means nothing you know uh because you know they have radar data mm -hmm. uh, and you did get some radar data from other sources or got it from the faa yeah mm -hmm. so if the faa was able to capture it on radar they certainly were able to oh absolutely yeah plus they would have more information because uh, the military radar can identify size of objects and exact altitude even if it doesn't have a transponder uh, which FAA radar doesn't do that. Mm -hmm. um, Brian is saying they can't go over specifics without showing their top secret stuff. Um, although kind of like you talked about earlier, the radar data itself, aspects of it um, would not be revealing anything top secret. And it's not likely that those sort of radars would be, um, you know, a top secret sort of system. Right, right. That the, the top secret information is, for example, how fast the microprocessor on our radar system sends out that pulse and then reads it, for example, that that's going to be classified. But that the radar can tell you that an object was moving at 20,000 miles an hour. Well, there's nothing classified about that. That's just the end result of analyzing the data. Mm hmm. So what do you think is going on, I guess, when they're retrieving all this data, when they come across an image case, um, you know, leadership, and, and I would imagine the response is varied, probably widely varied, but what do you make of the response? What do you think that they're thinking about when they retrieve this sort of information? Um, and do they have a motivation to do something about it? Well, in the case of the, the USS Princeton, where someone comes on board and retrieves the data, there there had to be a reason. I mean, there had to be an organization somewhere because it happened 
the night of the event, right? So it was very rapid. So someone- And you're convinced that did happen because some people are, are skeptical. Right. Here, I Fravor is skeptical, right? Well, yeah, Fravor is skeptical, but Fravor was on the Nimitz. Right, and right. On the Princeton. And here's, I can t here's the reason that I'm not skeptical about it. The first person that told me, uh, and this was in April of 2018, was Kevin Day. And what he told me was not that someone came on board. He said he went the next morning to get the logs off of their uh, CMS system so that he could write his morning report. And he said everything was deleted. And, and that was all he told me. He said, I have no idea why it was deleted, how that could happen. The only thing he said was he's never seen that happen. And he didn't think it was possible, but clearly it was. Then when I talked to Gary Boris about two months later, for, the first thing I did was verify he had never talked to Kevin Day. So at that mm. point in time, these two guys had not communicated. And so I interviewed him. And in that interview, I mentioned, I said, uh, you know, that a senior chief went to try to get the uh, logs and couldn't get them. And then he says, oh, well, no, he's not going to be able to get them because I deleted them because we had a, a <coughs> some guys that came on board, took the date and asked me to delete everything else. Mm -hmm. So I've got two different guys who are basically saying the same thing. And then I, I look, we looked up, has this ever happened before? And I did find one incident where that's happened before. And that mm -hmm. was then, um, I don't know if you recall in 1986 or seven, we accidentally shot down an Iranian, a civilian airliner. Mm. And it was from a cruiser similar to the USS Princeton. And uh, the next day, a helicopter lands on board. They remove all the data from the ship, you know, for obvious reasons. Um, so it's that's happened before. So there is precedence. Have do you have you ever have you talked with uh, Chris Mellon or Lou Elizondo about that and asked them what they knew about where that data might have gone? Hmm. No, I I don't think I've asked them uh, where they uh, where they thought it it would go. I, I did talk to Hal Putoff about it and mm -hmm. Hal also in TTSA. And there's uh, actually there's a naval site and I can't recall its name at the moment. Dow Grin. Okay, just hit me. Uh, Dow Grin is in Maryland and that is their main research site. That's where they develop the Spy One radio radar. That's where they do their work on their uh, uh, magnetic rail guns. That's where they do their laser work. It's like their version of Area 51, but it's not, you know, it's a different type. It's a, a R and D. There's over 5,000 uh, people that work there. Uh, a good percentage of them are civilian scientists. So th that's where the data I think would have gone and Hal agreed. And he, he talked to some people there and they said they would try to get him the data, but you know, nothing ever came of it. So, I guess he was, mm -hmm. every time I've asked him, he, he hasn't been successful. So, mm -hmm. you know, uh, one last thing as we, we'll wrap this up, but, uh, I was thinking earlier, I think it was maybe in that interview last night, it was kind of funny to think about, uh, as this ATEP program was going on, you know, 
we were interacting and you even more so with the people that were in that project. I'm working on that. And little did we know, of course, both of us were in MUFON when we worked with Bigelow, who essentially was getting that funding out of ATIP. Um, and then you've been working on the UFO data project with uh, Chris Mellon, and I think Hal Putoff is part of that as well. Um, yeah, so, I, I think with Hal during that time. Yeah. It How does that make you feel? Working you know, for the ATIP uh, program. Uh, but I, I did find out later, like my Stephenville report, I guess those guys uh, read through it uh, extensively. Mm -hmm. And it seems to seven, six. And from what I understand, I, it seems as though your Nimitz report has also made the rounds. Yeah, I, th I think it has. I mean, we've sent uh, abbreviated copies of it to Congress also. So hopefully uh, it's been read a few places. Yeah, and it seems like Mellon uh, certainly likes to use it uh, for probably, there's probably better unclassified or classified reports that they're able to kind of distribute in their briefings. But uh, uh, at least in the, the uh, unclassified world, it seems to be Chris Mellon's go-to document in uh, demonstrating, you know, the significance of what happened there. Yeah. Uh, one last question, uh, Robert. Uh, have you heard anything about a third party who were supposedly tracking the Tic Tac from the shore? Uh, I have not, but it actually makes sense uh, that NORAD radar sites would have tracked that because there are NORAD radars. NORAD works with, has the FAA radar <clears throat> as part of their overall radar systems. And there were plenty of radar sites there. Uh, I sent a FOIA requesting radar data. Of course, you know, the answer was we have no data responsive to your request. Um, so no success there, but I, I can't believe it would not have been tracked from the shore. Yeah. So I guess going forward, um, and I would, I guess your assessment and, you know, maybe your response to people who would like to see things go differently is that it looks as though potentially if we go on track that the military is not interested in sharing more information, um, that we may get it, we'll get some sort of public report, uh, may be interesting or not, but that there's no guarantee we will get anything more past that um, unless something changes, unless somehow, you know, maybe the public is able to convince the Senate Intelligence Committee to, to do otherwise, to, to try to make them do more. Yeah, no, I, I agree. I think it will take uh, pressure from the public on Congress, you know, to, to make them do more. Of course, the other thing that happens is the phenomenon never goes away. So it always gives us an opportunity to. Uh, for this that is a great point. I think Nick Pope used to say that it's an event events led phenomenon. And and that is a good point that another image could happen that gets the public attention. Of course, that's what happened in 1952 in Washington, D.C. Uh, the public really got interested in that case and that helped. That's actually what helped keep Project Blue Book going, but um, those sort of events. And I guess um, the, the other good thing, though, I guess something is at least now we have a place to go to. At least now we can say, you know, we even from here into the future, we can always continue to ask for more information because now it's on the record that they take it seriously 
And there's even someone to petition for this information, the UAP task force. So there's a place that has that information. Now we know where it is. Um, we've just got to try to get them to open up and get some information out, which do you, I think that's possible, though. Don't yeah, you? I, I agree. If there was one thing that I wish the national media would do is quit asking about the video and, and just make the argument and say, Okay, you guys kept the video. You didn't throw away the radar data now, did you? So tell us what did the radar data tell you? You don't have to tell us, you know, the national security parts of the radar data, but what did it tell you? Did it, you know, what was the speed? What was the acceleration of these mm -hmm. objects? I mean, yeah, because tell us that. Yeah, it obviously supported their case that these were unidentified. They weren't ours. They weren't Chinese or Russians. But what of that? What about that data made them go to that conclusion? Right. Yeah. Really interesting. All right. Well, thank you so much. I agree with you. The media has not really dived into the important details. Their coverage has been so surface. Hopefully, that'll change over time. But it's information like the information that you're providing that's going to help do that. So, thank you so very much. Um, and I guess, what can people look for in the future? Do you got anything new coming out? Um, what kind of URLs or places that you would point them to to look, look well, for? Uh, for SCU, they can go to explorescu.org, all one word, explorescu.org. And then <clears throat> next month, I'm going to have a, a book called The Truth About UFOs, but it's geared towards eight to 11 year olds that have a scientific bent to them. So That's it, awesome. Yeah, an interesting book for kids. Mm -hmm. Well, it's a no. smart move for several reasons. First of all, there's obviously this lack of interest in science that's going on. Um, so to get kids interested in science and then also demonstrate, set them off on the right foot that there is some science to do in this field. Yeah, there's a lot of science to do in this field. Right. So thank you so much. People are thanking you, saying they love the interview. I did as well. I always do. Thank you so much for coming on again. And uh, we'll talk to you soon. All right. Thanks, Alejandro. Good to see you again. All right. And thank you to the audience. Thank you all so much for being here. And uh, for those of you who didn't catch us live, hopefully you'll catch this uh, on the replay. And remember, it'll be free for a few days and then it'll go into the archive. So thank you all so very much. Everyone have a lovely Halloween. Bye-bye. <laughs> Bye. -bye. Bye.